Welcome to Cross Section, conversations at the intersection of faith, news and culture. Hello and welcome to another episode of Cross Section. Your two favourite hosts have returned to discuss politics, faith and the headline news from this week. I am Alicia Edmund and I'll be joined by Peter Linus. Peter, it's been a while since we've both been on the episode. What have you been up to? Update our listeners. Oh, I love that we're self-declaring that we're the favourites straight away. Uh, I was on tour last week. I was in Barnsley, Hull, York, Leeds, Bradford, Sheffield, Leicester. I think that's all the places we were. So Gav and myself and Ben were were meeting church leaders uh, across Yorkshire and slightly beyond the boundaries of Yorkshire. So it was absolutely fantastic just to hear what was happening, churches on the ground. Amazing. And I've not been on for two weeks Last week, the team were in Northern Ireland, so you heard the wonderful Danny meeting both Dawn and David to talk about Northern Ireland politics. But the week before, I was in Loch Fine in the beautiful Scotland on a mini road trip. So that's where I was, taking in uh, this, the landscapes and also the cold. I feel like I brought back the chill back to London. It's awfully cold. Um, but pleased to be back on the episode and to be talking all things politics. Uh, at the time of recording, it's Thursday, which for most of our United States listeners, yes, we are a global podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is Thanksgiving and Black Friday. Peter, have you begun your Christmas shopping? And is Thanksgiving a thing in your household? Uh, so no on the Christmas shopping front, although the household has begun its Christmas shopping, judging the number of parcels that are coming through our door at the minute. So we collectively seem to have begun that. Um, Thanksgiving, not huge, although I did text uh, one of our church staff team who comes from the States this morning to to wish him a happy kind of Thanksgiving day or whatever you're supposed to do. So definitely aware of it. Um, but no big feasting going on in our house tonight. Although I suspect Black Friday will will probably register at least on the radar of our household. Nice. Yeah, similarly, uh, Thanksgiving is not a thing for me in our household. Although I do, my pastor, one of my pastors is American and they always gather the family. And I think it's something I should introduce. Practicing Thanksgiving more um, regularly around the dinner table to give um, a nod to all that we're grateful for in our lives. And I'm not usually into Black Friday. However, I do need a new mirrorless DSLR camera for 2024 to capture the landscapes and sights of Japan, which is where I will be. So I might be buying a Fujifilm or a Sony camera tomorrow. Wait and see. Tune into next episode to see if that actually happens. We're on the edge of our seats already. Of course you are. Uh, So (laughs) since we last met uh, and since um, kind of the last time we spoke, so much has happened both nationally and geopolitically. There's the ongoing UK COVID inquiry that's going on. It's revealing the dysfunction of number 10 and government policy during the pandemic. We have possibly um, hostage release in terms of the Israel-Gaza conflict. We have the open AI merry-go-round where Sam Altman's CEO was sacked, joined Microsoft, left Microsoft and has gone back to open AI. If you're as confused as I am, stay tuned to story three, where Peter will be joining, explaining more about that. But 
conversation that you and Peter and I have not yet had is everything to do with the government's Rwanda plan and in particular the Supreme Court ruling. So over to you, Peter, can you provide an update on mainly the government's policy direction rather than uh, the details of the court ruling? Wow. No, you put me on the spot. I should say, I think there's one other news story. Gert Wilders, it looks like he's going to win the Dutch election as well. And that would be relevant to this because it's very much around immigration in Holland or the Netherlands. My daughter's just discovered they're the same country, which is fun for her, um, that she'll hate me for saying that on the podcast. Okay, the Rwanda policy. What did you ask me? What's the overview of the policy? Okay, so the government said we are going to, as the UK, um not host uh, those who have come uh, to the UK illegally or are waiting to be processed in the UK. We're going to send some people to Rwanda and they will be held there while their claims are processed. So essentially using a third party country, but that country was Rwanda and that was at least part. So both parts of that are controversial using a third country and using Rwanda in particular. Um, but this was the government saying we're bringing migration down. We're going to deal with this problem. And a lot of this uh, politically was a deterrent idea. If you're going to send people straight off to Rwanda as soon as they arrive in UK shores, it becomes much less appealing in the government's view to come to the UK. And so I think that's probably the, the kind of core political aspect of this policy. Get migration down. That has been the Conservatives kind of core message. They haven't been able to do it. And this was a key plank in what they wanted to do. For sure, that's definitely been um, the Conservative Party's policy agenda, immigration figures, and we'll be returning to that. But definitely the Supreme Court ruling kind of upheld the Court of Appeals judgment in saying that there were substantial grounds for believing that what is the kind of migration and economic partnership um, with Rwanda would lead to this phrase of non-refoulement, which in legal terms is the idea that those who are seeking asylum would be removed to a third country. So it's the UK taking the individual to Rwanda and non-refoulement would be that the Rwandan government would then pass on or transfer or remove that individual from their country to a place where they are at risk of greater persecution, either for their political opinions, their safety, their religious identity, sexual orientation or gender identity. And so the Supreme Court ruling basically came back and said they had grave concerns uh, around this. Um, but returning to that point and the challenge around the politics around this, there's been definitely... Um, hoo-ha within the Conservative Party in terms of their reaction to the Supreme Court ruling. What is your take, Peter, on the fallout within the Conservative Party? Well, the, the challenge for them is they've made this very central to their election and they want to be able to do this and they think the voters want this to happen. So there's a, a classic kind of the elite in London, they would say, are kicking off about this and don't like this policy, but actually the average voter and again, these are very contested terms, but their views want this, particularly in the red wall uh, that the Tories have done well in, in, in uh, pr primarily the north of England. And so they're saying we need to get this policy back on track. Um, if we don't do this, there's going to be a problem. And, and so some have been commenting the appointment of people like David Cameron, the kind of 2015 intake and some people from there is a negative, is a step backwards. It's back to the kind of ruling elite making decisions um, and it won't and isn't going down well in their view with voters. And this goes to the heart of it. Like the country is somewhat split on this issue. I mean, it probably links back to Brexit. And again, that showed part of the split. Some do want to see migration down and people 
sent back, if you like, and they don't believe that many of the people coming are legitimately coming here and our migrants coming here, or, or sorry, our uh, refugees coming here. And others are saying we should absolutely be open in a place of welcome. We're not doing our fair share. We want to be an international country. And in fact, our entire economy and systems are built on people being able to move freely. So you have a fairly fundamental split going on and the Tory party are split down that line as well. Um, so that causes political problems for them. And I think wider problems or challenges in society because there are quite profoundly different views about the best way to operate in this moment. For sure, definitely. Um, the Conservative Party and under its three successive prime ministers and political leaders have made stopping the boats very much a policy objective, a campaigning arm, whether that was under previous Home Secretary Priti Patel or previous Secretary Bar One, Suella Brahman. Um, we've had the Nationality and Borders Act, which essentially was a starting point in 2022 that created a two-tier system, asylum system, which essentially mean that both men, women, children, those who entered the UK through irregular routes um, would uh, kind of be tiered differently in their treatment, likely to go to a detention centre uh, or accommodation centre and likely to be removed from uh, to a safe country and then the most recently is the conversation or the recent act around the illegal migration act uh, for which the evangelical alliance um, was engaged in both at a policy level and engaged in both christian um, media in kind of raising awareness uh, on this this scheme that essentially um, criminalized those that enter the country through irregular routes uh, and as a result, this is where the random policy has come out of this. I guess one of the concerns that we, we not just as Christians, but uh, definitely the British media are commenting on or reporting is how will the government move forward uh, with the Supreme Court ruling? And so far, there's been a level of murmurs, rumours, whether that's the Suella Bravman op-ed or Matthew Side's comment in the Times that the government will remove itself from the European Convention of Human Rights and other international treaties as a way to bypass this non-refoulement element that is entrenched in so many international pieces of law and by extension get through the Rwandan policy. To do that has many implications for the human rights framework in the UK and definitely the UK standing in international law and just international relations. Coming to you, Peter, the idea of the UK government removing itself from the European Convention of Human Rights has a direct impact on the Good Friday uh, and Belfast agreements. As someone who lives in Northern Ireland and knowing the fragility of politics at the moment in trying to get Stormont back up and running, what are your personal reactions and insights to this? Yeah, well, I think they are twofold. One relates to Northern Ireland and one maybe more generally, but in, in Northern Ireland, absolutely, it's critical no, look, it was critical in a sense where it was really important that we were in the EU initially and Ireland were. So that made the whole agreement much easier to process because you were both uh, had a, a kind of underlying legal system and framework um, that allowed North and South of Ireland to operate together. We've had to navigate the UK coming out of the EU and Northern Ireland has this very peculiar status. And we've had the Windsor framework and all these issues around it. Um, to come out of the European Convention of Human Rights would have a further impact because it's part of the kind of underlying uh, framework of agreements that holds the Good Friday Agreement in place. Um, so yes, it would affect Northern Ireland for sure. Um, we don't have a government. That's a major issue for us. We are 
somewhat hopeful, I think, at this moment that maybe before Christmas something might come into play. Um, but I think it's not just for Northern Ireland where it would definitely cause problems. A, a lot of people I speak to, and I mean, a lot of Christians have concerns about the European Convention of Human Rights, as do I, but I would also have probably more concerns about not being in that convention. There are a significant set of rights, not just about freedom of religion and belief, but that's one of the core ones that actually frame it. And if you come out of it, you then have to put something else in its place. And to start to build a human rights framework now, in the moment that we're in, in the cultural moment that we're in, I think would be really, really difficult. We've seen some of the conversations around that. The starting point would be way worse than the European Convention of Human Rights. It's not perfect. But in my view, it enshrines quite a lot of fundamental and important rights. If we start the conversation now in the UK, if, we, if you're like, if we come out and start our own Bill of Rights, the difficulty is what's the framework? There's even less agreement that the Christian story should be at the foundation of this. And there's even less agreement on what other set of values or frame we would build this. And it would just be a hodgepodge of random ideas is my fear and concern. So is the European Convention of Human Rights perfect? Absolutely not. Is it a pretty good starting point that gives a lot of good protections for people? I would say largely yes. Do Finally, do I have concerns about how the court sometimes interprets it? Yes, on the boundaries. And lots of people do and push that. If we overextend human rights, we undermine the core fundamentals. But I'd be very careful about a kind of desire just to get rid of it and what would inevitably replace it. Yeah, definitely show your concerns about removing ourselves from the European Convention of Human Rights because of um, the importance of religious freedom, thought, expression that is currently um, written and entrenched in that um, in that document. Uh, and both in our engagements way back when, when there were conversations of a Bill of Rights coming into uh, the UK, we very much advocated for the viewpoint that it's important that both government and the Joint Committee of Human Rights that were um, considering and reviewing proposals for a new Bill of Rights played its part to strengthen, however you reform the Human Rights um, Act, strengthen minority views, particularly religious views, in a culture that's forever progressive and secular at its core, that religious freedom um, and belief is the foundation of any thriving liberal democracy. So we await to see the outcome of how uh, Rishi and his government respond to the Rwandan policy uh, and what will be coming forward. I mean, it's kind of interesting and timely that as we're talking about the Rwandan um, kind of Supreme Court ruling today, the Office of National Statistics um, reinforced that in the last 12 months, um, up until June 2023, that uh, immigration migration to this country was 672,000, uh, the majority of that being non-EU migrants. So there's definitely uh, going to be political jousting continuing into 2024, where migration, immigration and asylum will be a continued political debate in the United Kingdom. And no doubt we will be contributing to that as we draw closer to the general election. But one part of migration and the immigration um, kind of context that we don't really talk about is its impact to the UK church. And I was just fascinated to read this week um, the Bible Society have published a report that looks into as um, essentially saying that the Chinese church is the fastest growing church 
in the UK and about 28.8% growth in the last two years. So that's significant numbers as an opportunity of both mission, church growth, discipleship, evangelism. And here are just some of the headlines. I'd encourage you to go onto the Bible Society website to learn more. It's saying that nearly 60% of the Cantonese congregation have witnessed significant growth in the past two years. It also went on to say that not all Chinese Christians attend a Chinese church. So actually many are integrating and attending other um, churches that isn't dominated by ethnicity. As mentioned, one of the fastest growing Chinese churches is in, in fact in Manchester Alliance Centre. So within that area has seen sixfold growth within that church, which is just incredible. And that approximately one third of non-Christian Chinese individuals are open to accepting an invitation to attend a church or a church service. So great opportunities and would encourage you to go to the Bible Society website to, to read that report. It's called The Chinese Christianity in Britain. But coming to you, Peter, we've done our own research around Talking Jesus and just more generally, what's your assessment on the missional opportunities that migration uh, to the UK brings for the UK church? Yeah, well, they're, I mean, they're huge, as you've been highlighting there. I mean, we reckon about a quarter of evangelicals are, are non-white in the UK. We're trying to get some better metrics around that. Um, probably the fastest growing is within uh, the Nigerian church uh, and the African Caribbean church. But now what we're seeing is significant growth. And as you were highlighting, Chinese, Hong Kong church, Cantonese speaking church, and lots of other groups. So First generation, they will often tend to gather together with uh, within their own communities. But as they enter the second generation, those become often much more missional and diverse communities. And um, so we've been working, uh, looking at both second generation churches uh, around that. And we've got a piece of research we're just completing at the minute in terms of race within the church uh, in the UK. Uh, racial justice and uh, a number of issues around that. So hopefully that'll come out early in 2024. Um, so we think it's a really important aspect of the church. Um, and missionally, I think it's fantastic. We're, we're definitely seeing growth and it creates challenges and questions, but I think those are also ones we want to tackle head on and look at what we can learn from the intercultural church. So our colleagues at the One People Commission within the Evangelical Alliance lead on that. And there are some great good news stories that we want to be sharing more about. Amazing. So from one news story of Rwanda migration, immigration into the news, um, the political headlines this week in uh, the UK, and that is the Autumn Statement. Uh, the Chancellor, uh, Jeremy Hunt, uh, took to the dispatch box uh, this week to kind of give a uh, give the autumn statement what's the good news and his headlines is very much about tax cuts uh, in order to lead to economic growth just some of the headlines was that there was a two pence cut to national insurance contribution for employees which essentially and potentially means that those on average salaries could be better off by 450 pounds per year uh, there was also a scrapping of class two contributions for those who are self employed there were significant welfare reforms up to 1.3 billion very much looking to um, support nearly uh, 700,000 individuals with health conditions and particularly around mental illness accessing work 
There were also increases to universal credits, disability benefits, and others of up to 6.7%, which will take place from April 2024. And there was so much more. And in fact, I'd encourage you to follow member organisations' questions against poverty. They did a great summary in distilling what the autumn statement means for individuals. But coming to you, Peter, any standouts from the statement yesterday? I think, well, the obvious thing is that look, we've got an election in the offing, so you're seeing the movements around that. I mean, the national insurance one is probably a pretty significant one for anybody in employment, is one of the biggest impacts. But also really struck just by the low inflation's on its way down, the level of rises on benefits, on pensions, and on the national living wage. These are great, but I mean, you're looking at an increase of 12% for certain categories within the national living wage. And um, that has a very significant impact in two ways. One that is very positive for those who are on that wage, getting that wage that really does push that up from 10.42 to 11.44 for those who are 21 and over. Um, but also we've got to acknowledge the reality that that um, has an impact on jobs towards the bottom of the market and the stepping stones in. So already commentators saying the problem is you squeeze you know, the ability to for people to enter the job market and people will restrict some of those jobs. So those levels, and particularly on the pension, I think it's 8.9% or something pensioners get, and much as I love my mother and pensioners, um, that has a there's an intergenerational challenge still going on for us and the kind of triple lock around the pension. And because people, older people vote and therefore policies tend towards them, does have an impact on our society too. So broadly positive statement. A lot of people will be better off as a consequence of this statement. Um, but who pays for this in the long term is still a question. <laughs> who indeed does pay for this in the long term is the conversation. Very much media commentators are saying that this sounds like a, a an election pitch. It's uh, Jeremy Hunt and Rishi Sunak kind of gearing up for a potential May 2024 election. And in fact, in his interview, uh, uh, in the Chancellor's interview this uh, morning with Kay Burley from Sky News, he said there is a clear choice at the next election. And for me, this is definitely um, going to be my focus. It's going to be our focus for the next six months to a year in terms of the general election, not just when it happens, but most importantly, how evangelical churches and Christians can engage in that election well, both representing the needs of their local community, but also the gospel message into public life and politics. And we are also hosting um, a politics uh, survey called political engagement, where keen to hear from our listeners, our members about the issues that matter to you, how you engage in politics. And we'll be writing a summary about that uh, in the spring in terms of how we're looking to support and equip uh, the church to engage in the next general election. And we'll put a post of that in the keynotes. You've been listening to Cross Section and Evangelical Alliance podcasts. Thank you for listening and joining. But as uh, if you would like to continue to engage in the conversation and contribute, please contact us at cross.section at eauk.org. So from migration to economics to open AI, over to you, Peter. Yes. So we are incredibly excited to have the one, the only special guest, Tim Koish, head of digital and head of membership at the Evangelical Alliance. Tim, welcome. Thanks for having me. Well, look, we needed an expert because they always ask me questions on AI and I, I have run out of information. So I was arguing in a, on a call earlier this week that, that the biggest story over the weekend 
was OpenAI and Sam Altman. I'm going to ask you in a minute about that. Just So ChatGPT, some of our listeners may be thinking, what's the relevance? If you've ever used ChatGTP, if you've ever used DALI to do your kind of drawings or images, then you've been using OpenAI and a thing that this guy Sam Altman runs. So who who is Sam Altman, if people have no idea and maybe started to see his name in the papers this weekend? Yeah, well, he's a fascinating guy. He, um, Sam Altman set up OpenAI in 2019 with his mate at the time, Elon Musk, who I'm sure many of us have heard. Um, so he set it up as, an, as a not-for-profit charity, basically, in America, with the aim of producing something called artificial general intelligence, which I'm sure I can explain in a second. <laughs> well, exactly. Now you've teed me up. What is AGI or artificial general intelligence? It's it's a hypothetical thing at the moment, but it's basically trying to create an AI, you know, a computer that can do and think the same way that we as humans do. You know, there's various things about how long people think will take to get there, but that's the goal for most of these, if not all of these AI companies. They want to try and aim to create an AGI, something that is as good, if not better, than thinking than, than, than we as humans are. So one of the things about ChatGPT, which is the kind of front end of this, I think most people, if they're going to have experienced this at all, that's their way in, I'm going to guess, is that it is free to the user. You have to sign up. But the reason is, and I think what's interesting about OpenAI, and this is, Tim, I want to see if I'm right, is it's open as in it's non-commercial, although that's got a little more complicated. But essentially, that was the founding idea, was that this would be held in an open source way so that all of us could contribute and in some sense also have an impact or an input into how this technology was was taken forward. Yeah. Is that a, is, tell me, <laughs> tell yeah. us more about that. Is that right? Yeah, that's, so that's how it was founded. It was set up, you know, um, with with the goal to be, you know, uh, an open source, not-for-profit. Um, they, they transitioned to this sort of um, closed profit, capped profit model because they, it didn't make a, enough money basically you know these things cost millions billions of pounds to run um and they couldn't recruit the best people so they so the, the structure and this is where the story is really interesting the structure of this company is is fascinating because you've got a bunch of um people who have a non-for-profit goals but they are their their calls are the values of the company but the company has has investors and it's, it's all a bit muddled which is where this this um this story that happened in the last week came out from yeah so in short so it's an open it's a non-profit initially it's actually now potentially valued at 80 billion dollars 80 billion just for clarity and that is a potential underestimate that's why this is potentially for me the kind of the the world changing story of the weekend this guy left and went to microsoft he's now come back but this is potentially the technology embedded in every microsoft product going forward this is the kind of technology that every single company prob probably already uses. Well, tell me this, do we use AI in, in the Evangelical Alliance, Tim, already? <laughs> um, not explicitly, no. We Some people, some of, our, some of my wonderful colleagues, explicitly, including myself. Tim, you're going to set fear in our membership. <laughs> how do you think we come up with a script for this podcast, Alicia? How do you think everybody's oh, do like... Not, do not... I think lots of people, a lot, a lot of people in every organisation tend to use it for basic stuff. You know, write me a, a plan for a meeting, stuff like that, and give it input. But no, we don't, 
don't use it in terms of analyzing data, which is what a lot of people tend to do and, and, and some big picture stuff. But the fact that we are on Microsoft Teams as an yeah. organization, as many people are, means we are essentially using AI. We use AI yeah, to generate a Zoom transcript after this call, potentially, or the, after a meeting. Like it is, it is inherently inbuilt in loads of these yeah. programs. Isn't that the reality? Yeah, and it, and it's become going to become more. You know, you've got Siri on your phone or Google Hey now, whatever it's called, on your Google phone. You know, that they, they are at the core an AI AI product. Very simple AI, but you know, and my Siri's just going off now because I've said that. But yeah, there's um a, there's AI in everything so you, you can't avoid it yeah if you use any kind of transcription service if you put the uh, closed caption whatever you call it on your videos all those things are using ai to generate this so we are all and this is why again i think this story is so interesting i'm not saying we have an easy conclusion but particularly with microsoft potentially taking it over but each of the commercial firms is looking at a version of this i mean is you know the conversations i have tim with people is often like can you use a should you use chat gpt to write your sermons and these are always fascinating talks with ministers um well that's the reality of the world i go to church leaders we have you know that's a kind of banter conversation but it is actually becoming a bigger part of our lives in all sorts of shapes and forms. And Sam Altman, the reason the story was interesting this weekend, is probably the guy who is shaping the next yeah. ten to twenty years of AI. Yeah, and he's got he's got a good he's got a very good public image. He's very knowledgeable, you know, in in the field. But but the reason this story I think exploded so much is because a he's he's fascinating. He's a really interesting guy. He's got a good image, but also he is. He is the founder and the top guy at this company that is at the forefront of AI. You know, uh, lots of companies are doing AI, but OpenAI are probably the leaders because they're the people who brought it onto the scene, really, with ChatGPT. So he's fascinating. Um, so, I'm no, no. Well, I'm going to speak for a minute because I'm, I'm going to give Alicia time because she is the queen of AI, and I'm sure she'll have a question in a minute. Before I close out, Alicia, do you have a, a question or a comment on all things AI? Definitely not a comment. I feel inadequate. I stick to politics, faith and fashion. They're my specialist subjects. But just as we've got an expert in Tim on the call, I know Peter thinks he is the expert, but he's just more knowledgeable than the rest of us as contributors. Tim, I'm a woman. And normally in these conversations, I know that seems a controversial topic, but we'll keep moving. Tim, mostly in these conversations around chat GBT or open AI, it tends to be men that dominate the conversation, both in the media, both online, writing articles, op-eds, defending it or not. Are there any females that are in this space that are outspoken, uh, that are engaged, that I should follow and maybe as a starting point, learn their perspective and engagement on it? Yeah, there, there's there there are there are a few. I mean, I think you're right. I think it is male dominated. I mean, even looking at what's happened in the story with the the board of directors, I think there was only one woman on the board compared to yeah, compared to I think quite a few other guys. There are um, I don't have any names off the top of my head, which is, <laughs> but there are there are plenty. I'm not I'm not an expert on AI. People who are researching. I was at a conference last week actually in London, hosted by. Um, a Christian charity, and there is a, an AI um, talk from, she's in LA somewhere, and, and she's a professor researching AI. She's been around in the world for, for at least 10 years in AI, um, which is uncommon because most people are sort of jumping on the bandwagon. So there are, there are definitely um, voices out there, but I couldn't tell you that many male voices as well. So 
apart from Sam Altman. There were actually two females on the board, uh, Helen Toner and Tash oh. McCauley. I did quickly, quickly Google, I'll confess that, but um, but it is a definitely male space. Tim, uh, before I close, any, I mean, you're as a Christian in this space, like I think people, there seems to be a hesitation often around AI, and you have been within EA, not, an advocate's too strong, but you've certainly said to us, look, guys, it's coming and need to be alert to this, and you're, you're yeah. probably more open than some others to it. Any kind of advice or tips you can give us as, as AI continues to become a bigger part of our lives? How do you process that? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, this conference I was at, a lot of them compared AI to, you know, the Gutenberg Press or the internet, you know, in terms of a, as, a, as a real marker of change for society. But I think for most people, that's overwhelming because they just want to know how they can use it in their in their in their day-to-day lives or how can they not get behind the times i think it's it's not being scared to to sign up for an account you know it's a free account um don't put in anything you don't want anyone else to know about like anything else on the internet but it's like you know sign up and just see see what it does and then i think you can at least have an understanding of of how this could be useful um to you and and you sort of get a sense of of where this thing is going in the future Tim, thank you so much for being with us. Just as we uh, bring this show into land, thank you, Alicia, for doing all the hard yards and giving me the fun slot at the end. I think for me this week, you know, the biggest thing probably has been just the nuance in a lot of these stories. Um, from the Rwanda story, again, we read a lot of the headlines, but we're looking behind to actually what was a really considered, I think, and helpful court judgment. Um, on the migration figures again, we often see the headline figure, it's gone up from this, it's moving here and we need to stop this. But actually in behind, you highlight again a really interesting story from Bible Society about some of the positive impacts of migration within the Christian community and just being alert to those stories. And finally, on the AI story, again, it can be easy to find it either overwhelming or something we have a very binary, well, it's all really good or it's all really bad. And the reality in most of these spaces is we aren't to be fearful. But we have to kind of take a nuanced view and think, well, actually, how does this help shape our faith? What impact is it having without realizing it? Um, it's like the, the human rights agenda that we talked about before. You don't get to the human rights decision on Rwanda without understanding that rights are a fundamentally Christian idea. Um, even in terms of the welcome and migration, we're often talking in language that's actually deeply rooted in Christian uh, thinking around this. And when it comes to ethics, AI have said themselves, they don't have a clear ethical framework and somebody needs to have an impact on that. And ethics has always been historically a branch of theology within uh, academia. And so we want to bring our, our, our thoughts to bear on that and, and thoughtfully engage in the culture around us, which is ultimately what Cross Session is cross section is all about so thanks for joining us this week and listening along um i'm not even going to predict who's going to be on next week probably ai could tell us who it is but it's it's bound to be danny webster back back joining the team at some point soon um and uh, we're looking forward to being with you next week please do uh, like share and uh, let others know about cross section and have a wonderful week be blessed hi it's peter here thank you so much for listening to this episode of cross section If you liked it, can I encourage you to click subscribe, review the podcast, share the episode on social media or tell your friends so that they can enjoy it too. And don't forget, you can email us at cross.section at eauk.org. See you next time.